Coming up, we go long with Sticky Fingers, the life and times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine author Joe Hagen. He always defaults to his own interests. Um, you know, in some cases for the better, but in many cases, you know, hurting people. And uh, the binary sort of behavior of this man becomes a theme in the book. On the one hand, he could charm and seduce and be your friend. And on the other hand, he could turn on you in a dime. And everybody who ever knew him experienced it. Back then, you get a record album, you pull out the liner notes, you look on it, this is really all you've got. Mm -hmm. This is your entire connection to these groups. And then Rolling Stone arrives. He didn't really need John Lennon anymore. He, was, he had moved on, yeah. and he had, now he had Hunter Thompson, and that's the new love of his life, right? In the way that John Lennon was the muse of the 60s, Hunter was going to be the muse of his 70s. Hey, folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. Come on in, pour yourself into Grony, have a seat at the bar, and listen to this interview. Man, what a story this is. This is Joe Hagen. He's a guy who's written for uh, Rolling Stone, The Wall Street Journal, loads of other publications. Uh, he does usually long-form profiles and investigative exposés of some of the most significant figures and subjects of our time. This is his first long-form book. It's called Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine. Now, there's been a great deal of press about this book, not just because it's a superior book, that it's a great read, but, you know, it's kind of an authorized book. It's not exactly... Jan Wenner helped out with this book. Jan Wenner, one of the most powerful figures in magazine publishing for the last four or five decades, he actually approved of everything until he didn't. And then there was a bit of a problem. I'll let Joe Hagen uh, tell this story, but this kind of became the big launch of this book. That Jan Wenner was not pleased at the way he's portrayed here. But the book has come out. It's getting amazing reviews. And Joe Hagen is a great storyteller. You know it when you read the book and when you listen to this interview, you know what I mean. We start by getting the obvious stuff out of the way. Why doesn't Jan Wenner want you to read this book? Well, uh, you know, I spent four years interviewing him as well as lots of other people. And uh, I knew really from the get-go that the possibility of this making him unhappy was there. But it was, you know, a risk and, you know, you're going in to tell the truth. And a person like him who has a very substantial ego mm -hmm. uh, was going to have to look at 500 pages of you know, the truth laid bare of his life. And he was not a reflective man in his life. And so here he was going to have to look at everything. And, and the book gets into some very sensitive topics. He know? was a reflective, not a reflective man, but he was, you know, almost a hoarder. In the, in the New York Times article, uh, you say something like uh, he saved, you know, every document of his life because he believed one day he would be important. And important yes. is uh, yeah, in italicized. Uh, italics. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely true. And part of the... Um, kind of appeal of doing this book was that he had this massive archive. Um, I'm talking 500 boxes of like letters and documents and tapes and all kinds of stuff that nobody's ever seen. And uh, the beauty of it was, is it was searchable. Mm -hmm. You could, it was so beautifully archived that you could say, okay, Mick Jagger, and you type it in <laughs> and here's the 10 boxes that Mick Jagger stuff is in, pull them up. Let's look what's in there. And you had carte open blanche, access. carte blanche. And uh, so it was a thrill you know, to, to think about going in there and finding out what the story is. Well, 
I don't think uh, Jan is how you pronounce Jan, his name. Yeah. No, that's okay. I, I think it's poetic that you yeah. said Jan because for his whole life he's been fighting that. Yep. In fact, he added an N to his name to try to get people not yep. to call him that, which is funny. But anyway, his story um, was uh, deeply rich uh, as it was reflected in these archives and his correspondence with John Lennon told an entire story that who knew? I mean, that he had you know, been befriended him and collaborated with him and then betrayed him and, and Lennon never spoke to him again. And, and we'll, we'll talk about the details of that yeah. a little bit later on because it's a fascinating story about mm -hmm. someone choosing money over yes. his idol. That's right. Well, and that impulse in Jan Wenner turns out to be a theme in the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, he always defaults to his own interests, um, you know, in some cases for the better, but in many cases, you know, hurting people and... Uh, the binary sort of behavior of this man becomes a theme in the book. On the one hand, he could charm and seduce and be your friend. And on the other hand, he could turn on you in a dime. And everybody who ever knew him experienced this. Let's set the stage for people who maybe are a bit younger and don't know why Rolling Stone magazine is really sort of a, the, the counterculture Bible. It was yeah. for a long time an absolutely essential cultural document. That's right. Every week or every two weeks. Yeah. Well, just t even imagining the world before the internet is difficult for some people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was a time when uh, an issue of Rolling Stone was like your YouTube, your Twitter, your Facebook, your New York Times, and your name your favorite music source yeah, yeah. all wrapped up into one. And it was like this missive from the front. Yeah, I mean, this was the front lines of the culture you cared about and mm -hmm. all the people you cared about saying as much truthful stuff as you could imagine. And it was sex and it was drugs and it was rock and roll and it was your idols, Mick Jagger, the Beatles talking, you know, let's listen to what they have to say. 30,000 word interviews. I yeah, mean, huge. like extensive exactly. interviews. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and really almost unreadable today. You go back and you look at them, you're like, I didn't want to know that much about Pete Townsend is honestly, but uh, you know, the back then you get a record album you pull out the liner notes, you look on it, this is really all you've got. Mm -hmm. This is your entire connection to these groups. And then Rolling Stone arrives, and suddenly you can get deep with these people whose music is changing your life. And at the time, it was an island that you could go on, and there was nowhere else to go for it. And that was powerful. Because other than liner notes, and certainly records came with them, and, and you know, Ralph Gleason or somebody would have written them. Yeah. But there weren't that many people that were writing about rock and roll seriously. Not at all. Yeah. Lots of talk about the Beatles' hair, lots of, you right. know, which what John Lennon would like in a wife, those kind of stories. Exactly. But Rolling Stone was among the first in a, in a very big way yeah. to treat rock and roll like an art form. Yeah, absolutely. While they didn't give up some of that idolatry of yeah, the teen yeah, magazines. Yeah, yeah. They kept that in the formula, which was a thing that Jan was smart about. Right. But they, yes, they brought in the critics. And as I say in the book, they brought in a level of pretense and intellectual kind of uh, pretense that made it safe for boys to idolize rock stars right. in the way girls had done before. Because before it was Tiger Beat, 16, 17, and all these magazines that were really geared towards the girl fans, yep. the, you know. Uh, so here was a magazine or a newspaper at the beginning that was for boys and it was and men. And Jan understood that. That was a an insight that he had is that when the record albums began to be really big statements like Sgt. Pepper's, which was just a few months before the mm -hmm. first Rolling Stone, this is when, okay, everybody wants to know what does it mean? You know, this is getting deep. 
You know, the the big drugs are coming in now. Yeah, and, 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 and there was lots of talk about consciousness and and, oh, yeah. and and finding a new spiritual way of thinking about things. Totally, and, and LSD, and Jan yeah. was a huge devotee of LSD, <laughs> and as were the Beatles. And so you had this whole new way of thinking about the music that was self-important in a way, and it was important to a lot of people. And so that's why Rolling Stone was so powerful. And And... In the early days, it's hard to, again, picture it now when we know of the trouble that Rolling Stone has been in in the last little while with some editorial decisions that right. have gone south on them and that sort of thing. But, you know, Jan Wenner uh, popularized in, in a very big way uh, Hunter S. Thompson and mm-hmm. gave, you know, loads of writers who have gone on to become very influential their first space in yeah, a national sure. magazine. Right. Well, that was Jan's power, was that he could recognize talent who were constricted by the other forms of mm-hmm. uh, publications where they were uptight and square and everything had to be really formal. The, now these guys, these same writers, really talented guys from big newspapers, uh, hey, well, now I'm dropping acid and smoking weed, but I want to cover <laughs> this new thing. Jan's like, great, you have talent. You're a little bit of a broken toy, yeah. but we can work with you. And Hunter Thompson, you're a bit of a wild man and eccentric, and who's going to be able to kind of hold on to you? But he, I can manage you and direct your um, talents and your energies and boy, the power of it was incredible. And I argue in the book that, you know, Hunter Thompson, he really was the catalyst for sending Rolling Stone to a new level after the 60s. Yeah, and it certainly felt that way. I mean, I have the original Rolling Stone when it was still a folded up, almost like a broadsheet folded, sure. you know, and uh, with that fear and loathing appeared in. That's right. And and it, it, it was an important issue. It That's was right. an issue on which there was sort of a hinge to that. Absolutely. It was like... Somebody was speaking to people in a language they understood immediately, but that mm-hmm. had never been spoken before. Yeah, that they had never seen. And uh, it, it, for Jan Wenner and for Rolling Stone, it had an even extra level of importance, which was that Hunter became the muse of the magazine, and he attracted all people who wanted to be like Hunter. Mm-hmm. They were like, I want to be, <laughs> have that level of freedom and go that deep. And, you know, let all of the rules fall to the side. And this was the era of the quote-unquote new journalism, mm-hmm. right, that Hunter Thompson and Tom Wolfe pioneered. And Jan turned Rolling Stone into a venue for that. And that was very smart of him because at the time, people started saying, oh, journalism is the new rock and roll. And so he said he recognized it, put his finger on it, and boom. I'm speaking with Joe Hagen. The book is called Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone Magazine. Uh, we're going to get into some of the real particulars uh, later on, but just tell me how this happens. I know there were two other attempts by two other writers to write more or less authorized versions yeah. of Jan Wenner's life. I know there's a, at least one unauthorized version that he's not very happy with. How did this happen? You live in the same town? That's right. We, um, I had moved uh, to upstate New York from the city after living there for years. And uh, maybe the second summer I was there, uh, Wenner had bought a property nearby, a big kind of vast estate that was like a plantation really on the river. And uh, I ran into him at a coffee shop in town. And I knew who he was from the business and magazine business. And so I talked him up and said, hey, what are you doing here? And he said, well, you work for New York Magazine, which I did. And he thought that was interesting and he didn't know anybody around there. So he invites me over. We got to know each other a little bit. It was just casual, talking about the business, a little politics, a little music. And he dropped these Rolling Stone rock and roll stories, mm-hmm. right? And of course, I was all ears. That's fascinating. And he's got this amazing uh, spread. The first time I went over there, Annie Leibovitz was there with her kids. And they're all in the swimming pool. 
Okay, wow. my eyes are yeah wide open, and I'm kind of gawking at all of this <laughs> and thinking this is really amazing. Um, and so, you know, he did have me over for lunch once in a while, and he didn't know a lot of people in this area. His son had gone to a, a, a the college nearby, mm-hmm. and that's how he knew the area. So, one day he takes me out to lunch, picks me up in his Porsche, which was uh, I didn't mind, <laughs> and we went up to a little lunch spot and uh, ostensibly to talk about me coming to work at Rolling Stone which I was hesitant to do at the time because I had a good job and I was, didn't want to leave it. So, But then he says, well, what about writing my biography? Immediately, I'm sort of taken aback, um, shocked, excited, yeah. uh, a little terrified, you know, <laughs> because um, Jan Winter has a reputation in the business that preceded him. He was what people would say mercurial. They yeah. said, you know, you can't really predict what he's going to do. As I've uh, been saying, he's he threw a few people off, uh, you know, off the plank uh, <laughs> of his pirate ship over the years, and so I was concerned. After courting them, right? After, After courting them, yeah, doing maybe. much the same thing he was doing to you, exactly. Right? And there had been two previous attempts at the biography that failed, and so my first job was to investigate what happened with those, and I um, sort of looked into it and called a couple of one of the authors and asked him what happened and. And I kind of came away realizing, well, if I'm going to do this, it has to be done right, and I have to be really careful, mm-hmm. and I have to be methodical about how I would arrange this. But the first thing I knew is it had to be independent. Right. There was no way I was going to do an authorized book with him because I realized really pretty quickly that he's somebody whose you know, self-image may be miles away from what the reality is. Right. And the difference, so just so people know, the difference between a biography like you have written and then what they call an authorized biography is that your subject would have had, in an authorized biography, mm-hmm. your subject would have had say, said, oh, no, no, you can't write about that night in yes. you know, December 1969. When That's I, right. You know, so they, they can present a sanitized version or scrubbed down version of their lives. That's right. And I told him I would not do that. And um, so he said, well, let's come into the office. Let's talk about it. I said, well, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go into his office. And I told him this in advance. I said, I want to present you with negative information about you <laughs> and see how you handle it. You know, because that's going to be the test of whether we can do this. We went in. I read him some excerpts from a book he hates and supposedly has banned from the offices of Rolling Stone (laughs) called Rolling Stone, The Uncensored History by Robert Draper. And I read him a few things. He got agitated by it. Immediately I saw, well, this is going to be a little complicated. And then he also demanded that there be some strictures on, you know, restrictions on what I could write about in terms of like his sexual history, for instance. And after that, I wrote him a letter saying, you know, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. I can't live like that. I, the, you know, this is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You were a closeted gay man for 27 years and running this rock Married and roll. Married to a woman. Married yeah. to a yeah. woman. And there's got to be a lot going on there, and I need to be able to explore it to write a proper bio. And so we pushed back and forth. You know, the more I said no, the more he wanted it. You know, it's like a classic thing. And we sort of began to negotiate. And finally, we got to the point where, like he said, well, what do you need? Put it on paper. And I did. And he said, well, I just want the book fact-checked. And I said, well, I just want it that you can't read the manuscript until it's done. (laughs) And we got there, and he signed off on it, and all systems go. I'm speaking with Joe Hagg, and the book is Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine. So what was happening while you were writing? It took four years, and you interviewed him at length during that time. Did he ever say, oh, come on now? What's going on? Show me. Yeah, oh, many know. times. Oh, yeah. Many yeah, yeah. times. So oh, gosh. Pressure, yeah. yeah, towards the end, it was every time I saw him. Yeah. Show me the manuscript. I'll make it better. I'll make it better. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't think so. And, um, you know, 
he just began to get nervous mm-hmm. and controlling, and he's a controlling man. Let me yep. just put that right out there. You know, a lot of these powerful guys are. And um, so, yeah, I spent a year and a half doing all the research and conducting interviews, and then I uh, wrote the rest of the time until up until, you know, I was editing this thing in August. Wow. <laughs> this thing was wow, like down wow. to the wire because things were happening. Yeah. He yeah. was, you know, selling off some of his properties. He had a bunch of health issues this summer that were serious. And um, – things that I needed to get into the book and at the 11th hour, and I did. But, uh, you know, listen, he was a conflicted person much of his life. Mm-hmm. He was one of these people who could compartmentalize. He thought of himself as a, you know, macho, heterosexual guy married to a beautiful woman who's rich, and that was his image in the public. Secretly, that wasn't what was going on all the time, and he had a lot of you know, conflicted behaviors, and I think it came out in the way he acted mm-hmm. and the way he treated things. And you know, he says in the book that his kind of uh, affection for male rock stars, he had a certain finer understanding. Let's that's put it right. that way yeah, of yeah. that. And I thought, well, that's fascinating to think about how the images of rock stars were created by a guy who understood them in a different way. Yep. But he also understood, he said, that even the heterosexual guys who are into their rock idols and had their posters on the wall – he said, you know, you're liking that too, maybe in a way that you're not admitting or can't fully recognize consciously. But, you know, basically that the rock stars were liberated from the old ways of what meant to be man, a man. Well, you know? and you saw that in terms of uh, the John, famous John Lennon and Yoko uh, nude cover, right, yeah. uh, David Cassidy topless on the yeah. cover of Rolling Stone magazine. That's you right. Know. And Mick Jagger, who, yeah. you know, was kind of flouncing around in a yeah. way that he meant to evoke, yeah. you know, uh, some some kind of like gay moves. And he talks about that in the book, actually. And um, yeah, this sort of, every in every way that that upset, uh, you know, a polite society, yeah. it made the kids happy. Yeah, yeah. They were like, yes, let's just throw it all off and piss off the parents. This is great, <laughs> you know. So yeah. Jan got that in all kinds of ways. Yeah. And is it that... Well, you were saying he compartmentalizes. I know that the reason that Mick Jagger has really never written a book is because the myth is so much more interesting than yeah. what actually happened. Right. That's why the famous Robert Frank film, yes. the name of which I can't say on the radio, right. has never been seen because it shows life on the road with a rock and roll band for what it really is, which is drudgery and boredom. You yes. know, the myth is always more interesting. And the famous line, you know, when legend meets Truth, always yeah. print the legend or whatever the yeah, line yeah, is. Yeah. And that, I guess, is what Jan Wenner was thinking, right? Well, he would say that sometimes if I came to him with a fabulous anecdote to, to sort of um, confirm it with yeah. him, he'd be like, I don't remember that, but print the legend, you know. Um, but actually what I found in the reporting of this and the, the reason I did such deep reporting and tried to make it a really granular kind of novelistic mm-hmm. feeling book was I wanted to capture what the times were really like. And you say, you know, the drudgery and boredom of the tour. Well, and also just the messiness of these people's lives. I mean, they were a mess. You know, they were young people with too much power and too much money and a lot of drugs. Yeah, when the time when drugs fairly accepted drugs. What what do you think's going to happen? All kinds of craziness and... Joe Hagen is the author of Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, This is the result of Hagen's extensive interviews with not only Wenner himself, as we've talked about, but everybody from Mick Jagger to Bruce Springsteen to Tom Wolfe, David Crosby, Michael Douglas, Yoko Ono. I mean, it's it's really uh, a phenomenal piece of research. Let's talk about 
meeting and interviewing some of these people. Sure. Um, you're clearly a fan of the era and the music and all that. So Absolutely. meeting Bruce Springsteen must kind of blow your mind. Well, listen, I, I've seen Bruce Springsteen 13 times. <laughs> so uh, and that's a low number for the fans. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. But uh, so I love Bruce Springsteen. So, yeah, it was going to be a real thrill. And he uh, actually had me meet him in a diner on the Upper East Side. And we both had these black and white milkshakes that he was a big fan wow. of. And so, listen, you know, you're is sitting... Is that vanilla and chocolate? That's that right, thing? vanilla and chocolate. I love it. And uh, I was thrilled, you know. I was sitting there, but, you know, he, uh, you know, he sort of is puts on a little bit of an act, and he's uh, not the greatest interview, but yeah. he's, but it was thrilling nonetheless. And he gave me some great material, actually, that he, I guess, didn't use in his book, which I was happy to get it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and Yoko Ono, you know, while I was waiting for her to... Uh, come out to give me an interview. I'm sitting in her apartment in Dakota. In the Dakota? Wow. And there's the white uh, piano, the John Lennon's yeah. famous white piano. And over it is a Magritte painting that is, you know, probably worth a million <laughs> bucks. And I just sat there thinking, wow, this is really something. This else. is where John sat. This is where John sat. This is where he played piano. This is a, a real place. So, uh, and then we went into the kitchen and we had a little interview. And, and she was very candid and, um, and kind of uh, interesting. She was, she could be like kind of um, aggressive and and kind of in my face sometimes and pushing back on me. But then when she got going, she told her truth, and it was pretty interesting. And, you know, she wasn't always positive about winter. Well, exactly. And so is – what would you say was the, 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 the primary uh, um, attitude about him that you got from your subjects? Because – Many of these people owe him a great nod, a, a great tip of the hat, mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't always easy. And in fact, you know, as we alluded to earlier, and I'll, I'll ask you to tell the story about John Lennon, how, you know, really John Lennon and Rolling Stone magazine in the very early days were linked. I mean, without John Lennon, Rolling Stone probably oh, yeah. wouldn't exist in the way that it, that well, it went on to. Jan built Rolling Stone on his image. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a real way. On John Lennon's On John Lennon's image. He... You know, he's on the first cover, yes. Yeah. But then a year later, the first anniversary of Rolling Stone was this nude photo of John and Yoko that had been controversial and banned in the U.S. It was supposed to be an album cover. Um, that was like a, you know, it's, Jan told me that was their first experience with controversy. Right. You know, they put that on there. It sold way more copies. Everybody was interested. They had to do a reprint, right, which I don't That's think they right. had ever done before. Exactly. Right? And, and, of course, John and Yoko loved it yeah. because they saw, oh, Jan's going to be a guy who will be our partner in this, yeah. and especially as John and Yoko were breaking away from the Beatles. And uh, this fissure was one that Jan helped um, helped them with. He advocated for them. He printed anything they published. There are things you could look to see in the late 60s Rolling Stones that, uh, Rolling Stone magazines that were sent in by John and Yoko that really, they have no context and you can't understand what right. they're talking about. Right. But he just printed it. It yeah. was like, hey, look at this. It's That's how... Uh, awesome it is. It's you know? the word from the mount. It's yeah. the word from the mount. And uh, so they had this sort of, as they developed a kind of messianic um, sort of profile, mm -hmm. Jan was really helping them with that. So, you know, this leads up to 1970 when the Beatles are going to break up. Jan is going to try to get the exit interview with the Beatle, mm -hmm. you know, the John Lennon talking about what happened with the Beatles. Everyone wanted to know. He was in the middle of primal scream therapy, which was like he and Yoko were down in L.A., you know, screaming and crying and trying to get out all their feelings. And this is when they met Jan Winter. Yeah. And the opening of the book is this scene. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Jan bonds with them in a movie theater watching 
let it be. And John cry, or John Lennon cries That's watching right. Paul McCartney. That's right. And I mean, can you imagine that moment? Yes. And it's described so beautifully in the book, but can you imagine that moment? No, and for Jan Wenner, this yeah. like, you know, this 23-year-old fanboy of, Ep- you know, this is the greatest thing that could happen to him, yeah. right? And he's crying too, and he's bonding with them, and they're all hugging, and it's this crazy, you know, he describes coming to the emotional rescue of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is one a titanic event for Jan. So... Flash forward a few months, uh, you know, John has said, I'm going to give you this interview. And then he gives it to him. And it's like one of the most famous celebrity interviews in the late 20th century. It's an incredible interview. John is vindictive and angry. He's letting it all out about how much he detested his life in the Beatles. And he's a little overplaying it is the truth. But he gets really (laughs) upset. The interview is huge. It's two issues of Rolling Stone. They sell out and lots of people around the world talking about it. And then here comes the crucial moment. Mm -hmm. You know, John Lennon had told Jan in a handshake deal, this interview is mine. I own it. You'll just publish it in Rolling Stone, and that'll be the end of it. Well, Jan can't help it. He wants to publish it as a record at first. He wants to publish it as a book. He sees all kinds of, like, capitalistic potential. Now, let me just, as an aside, tell you one little piece of context. Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone had nearly—Rolling Stone almost went bankrupt in 1970. Right. So he barely survived the year 1970. And he was bailed out by all the record labels who gave him all this advanced advertising to keep him afloat because they thought Rolling Stone's good for us. Keep him alive. Right. So, yeah, now Jan's capitalistic impulses are now uh, stronger than they had been before. He realizes I got to keep my magazine alive. Yeah. Well, that's why he's looking for the money. <laughs> and, well, John Lennon says, don't publish that book. I don't want that book published. That interview, that was a one-shot deal. I got it out of my system. I don't want it to continue. Don't want to relive it. I yeah. don't want to relive it. And it hurt all the other Beatles very mm-hmm. badly. And uh, so, but Jan can't help it. He publishes it anyway. In a book called Lennon Remembers. Lennon Remembers. And uh, let's, as, as John Lennon later called it, Lennon Regrets. <laughs> Lennon That's Regrets. Right. That, so he was very angry about Jan doing that. Uh, Yoko Ono talks about this in the interview. She said that Jan was, I mean, John Lennon was furious and, uh, you know, John, uh, Jan Wenner said they never saw each other again. That was the, that was the relationship was terminated. It, it's amazing that that didn't put a nail or some sort of nail in the heart of Rolling Stone magazine, being it was a portrayal of arguably the biggest rock star in the world at that time. Right. And people must have known. Well, people in the business yeah. heard television. Townsend for must sure. have known, you know, yeah, yeah. all those people. Well, uh, well, here's the interesting uh, kind of cross-current that was happening. Right as he's getting this interview is right when he's recruiting Hunter S. Thompson to come. And it's within, I guess, um, seven or eight months of this interview that Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is published. And in the book, I sort of you know, you know, make these – this is a little hinge moment in, the, in mm-hmm. the book is that, yes, he didn't really need John Lennon anymore. He was he had moved on, yeah. and he had now he had Hunter Thompson, and that's the new love of his life, right? In the way that John Lennon was the muse of the '60s, Hunter was going to be the muse of his '70s. My guest in the studio is Joe Hag, and the book is called Sticky Fingers: uh, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone Magazine. It's in bookstores right now. We have a couple of minutes left uh, in this segment. Um, let's talk about. Uh, but there's a lot of stories of disagreements. He seems to, Bob Dylan, I, I think probably up there with John Lennon, was on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine Many as times. much as anybody. Sure. And uh, But they had disagreements over coverage. Oh, absolutely. Kind of constantly. In fact, it, yeah, right? there was a, a classic confrontation between Jan and Bob Dylan at Norman Mailer's apartment. 
1975 or six. And, uh, you know, Jan is called to the f- carpet by Dylan and says, well, you come over here, Jan Winter, and sit on the floor before me, and I'm going to tell you what I think. And Jan said, I was geared up for this confrontation. I said, no, I'm not going to sit on the floor. I'm going to sit in a chair, and we're going to, I'm going to hear you out. And Dylan yeah. gives him the what for and his litany of complaints. And Jan kind of argues him off of it, basically. Uh, you know, some of the complaints were like, you know, he published a Polaroid of Bob Dylan's right. daughter in Rolling Stone. Dylan didn't forget that and was pissed about it. Yeah, it's okay. Angry about it. <laughs> and uh, so in any event, uh, Jan, according to Jan, they sort of smoothed it out. Right. And things were great after that. And they did get a big Bob Dylan interview after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, though Bob Dylan later had problems with Jan off and on over the years, as a lot of people did. But listen, Jan Wenner was the arbiter of the rock world, and he was never going to be anybody's best friend for a long time. It doesn't feel um, like I'm reading a straightforward biography. It feels more like a portrait of a time and a place that happened to have, you know, a very strong personality at front and center. Yeah. Well, you know, I was somewhat influenced by serialized television. Right. I began to think of like Mad Men and the five seasons of Mad Men. Well, I knew I was dealing here with a soap opera, really, of yeah. like of all these very powerful people having uh, really soap operatic relationships. And I tried to piecemeal it out to make it feel like you could take on a history this large, but in set pieces, and that you would have characters returning again yeah. and again and again, just like you do in a, in a serialized television. And listen, I mean, Jan's story is as powerful as in as five seasons of Mad Men and, or any kind of Greek mythology. I mean, yeah. it's like it's the gods and goddesses battling it out for the myth. And right. it is, I mean, the. I guess the early part of the 20th century, you know, people look at at the birth of Esquire and right. the New Yorker and things as being this very glamorous time in publishing. I would argue that, you know, up until about 1990, you know, something, yeah. that you were looking at, you know, people that were really controlling uh, a much larger group of people. I Absolutely. mean, you know, people bought magazines and people's opinions were formed by the words in those magazines in a way that in the first half of the century, I don't think they were as much. And yeah, Jan Werner yeah. was one of the people at the forefront of that. I think so. You know, the two most successful magazines in the 1970s were Rolling Stone and People magazine. Yeah. And they both did something similar. They reinvented uh, modern celebrity culture to have the values of the youth culture. You know, they taught, retaught the culture and the, the, the country, really, and the world how to uh, think of celebrity, which is about authenticity and mm-hmm. sexuality and confession. And, you, you know, you, it's Here's all... Here's a look inside my home. Exactly, and, yeah, 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 my interiors, you yeah. know. And uh, Rolling Stone was a pioneer in that. And really, it's, as I say in the book, it's so kind of baked into modern culture, we don't even recognize it anymore. It's just accepted as as the way it is, but it wasn't always like that. No, it wasn't always like that. I mean, part of what I do, I write uh, nonfiction um, about celebrity, generally speaking, though, in film. And I mean, if you want control and, you know, uh, um, carefully painted portraits of celebrities, just look at the, the press on anyone from about 1965 or before, right. and there was nothing nah. that wasn't, you know, had a, the, or, you know, with the very few exceptions like Confidential Magazine and the odd 
thing that would yeah. that would leak out. But even those stories were often set up by studios. Even yeah. the bad stuff was set up. So uh, Rolling Stone magazine really did sort of revolutionize that kind of coverage. Right. And well, the, and these rock stars came to them wanting to be in there. Yeah. They're like, hey, put me in there, and I'll give you sixteen thousand words of hot air. You know what I mean? I'll tell you the whole thing, <laughs> the whole story about Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. You know. Or the secret deals and packs between Mick Jagger and Jan Winter. Right. So, yeah, well, that's one of the great stories that I discovered in the process of looking in the archive and seeing the correspondence, which is that the most sort of astounding was that as soon as Rolling Stones started, they were sent a letter by the lawyer for the Rolling Stones uh, threatening them, uh, saying, hey, stop publishing. That name is ours. Yeah. It's a trademark thing. It's a copyright thing. And... Um, you know, so immediately Jan is sort of operating under some level of threat, and he doesn't have a Mick Jagger interview in <laughs> Rolling Stone for much of the first year of Rolling Stone. Yeah. Uh, and so he has to find a way to deal with this, and when he meets Mick Jagger for the first time, Mick Jagger's like, well, listen, I hear you want to start a British version. How about I own half? How about yeah. I control it? And what's Jan Winter going to say, you know, <laughs> because he knew he wasn't going to be able to publish in London with them in town. Right. And so he forms a, a venture, a joint venture, a business with him called the Transoceanic Publishing, Transoceanic um, Comic Company, which they published a British Rolling Stone. And this becomes the, the similar name, Rolling Stones in the Rolling Stone magazine becomes a subtext of their relationship for 50 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was struck by when I interviewed uh, Mick Jagger that I said, so what did it, what did you think when you first saw it? You know, he said, well, better question is, why did he call it that? Yeah. Why did he have to call it that? He's still thinking about it. And that really <laughs> kind of blew my mind. And then you, I started to go through the files and say, oh, this is like a kind of ongoing um, sub text yeah. to this thing is that they share this name and they're going to have for the rest of their yeah. lives and careers this symbiotic yeah, they, relationship. Yeah, they're going to be interwoven. Yeah. Totally. Well, who and, knew either of them would last for 50 years? Well, they couldn't the have thing. known, right? Yeah. So they, it wasn't until like the early 80s where they start to say, okay, let's put it, let's get some lawyers in the room yeah. and actually hammer this out because at that point they realize, hey, we're businesses now, yeah. you know? When did Rolling Stone as a vanguard of popular culture, start to lose its way? Because I would argue it was long before the Virginia rape story oh, yeah. sort of torpedoed things. That was that was later. I think they started meandering a little bit before that, and people just didn't really realize it because oh, yeah. the world changed and they didn't. Right? right. I mean, listen, if you talk to Greil Marcus, he'll tell you it ended in 1975. Yeah, yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, there were people complaining about the death of rock and roll very early on. I mean, um, I point this out in the book that John Landau, who was the first rock critic for Rolling Stone, later the manager of uh, Bruce Springsteen, he wrote in his book, um, he had a, a rock, a compendium of his criticism in oh, 1971. Yeah. He said, yeah, I kind of lost interest in 1970. You know, that's when I realized it's over. You know, and I was like, <laughs> wow. And a lot of people think it just was getting started. But, um, you know, my feeling is that um, Jan's magazine gave you a accurate impression of the culture up until probably when the 90s came along. Mm -hmm. He's lost touch. He was losing touch all along with a certain kind of underground that was always there. And with the insertion of Hollywood celebrities 
and you know. And I think when Spin magazine came along, for right. me, when I started reading Spin and putting the the two side by side, yes, one started to look like Life magazine, that's and right. one started to look like the hippest thing going. Well, that's right. Yeah, and that's how I felt too. I'm from in between. I'm a Gen, Rec, Gen Xer. Right. You know, MTV was like a kind of huge deal for mm-hmm. me. And I subscribed to Rolling Stone, but when Spin came along, it was like, oh, this is, you know, water in the desert. This yeah. is what I was looking for. Well, even the covers were cooler. The early covers were yeah. really eye-catching, and they were vibrant, and they 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 had I, – I, I still remember, like, the Talking Heads cover was all yellow, and it was just yeah. very cool. It was just – it had a different feel. That's right. And uh, Bob Guccione Jr., who started that magazine, mm-hmm. tells me in this book, that, you know, I learned from Rolling Stone. I was going to redo what they did. Yeah. But unlike them, see, they started rock and roll because they thought it was important. We thought it was self-important, right. and we were going to make fun of it because there was a new kind of youth uh, attitude that, was, yeah. that had yeah. come around. And Jan didn't capture that part of it. He never had much interest or uh, kind of capability with irony. <laughs> Jan Wenner was not an ironic man, not once. And uh, in a way, like... He couldn't grab the new um, vibe, right. you know, and uh, that's where it starts to. And he went in a different direction, and that's. It was during the '90s that art direction became almost the leading edge of Rolling Stone. It was all about just naked celebrities on the cover. There's a lot of them. If you go back and look, it's kind of shocking how many shirtless people are on the cover. And the Demi Moore. No, that was Vanity that Fair. That was Vanity but Fair. But there were just you know, go yeah. look, you'll see them. The Red Hot Chili Peppers, all of them. Right. But um. And in a way, uh, that's when Jan starts to just sort of become conservative, mm-hmm. even more so than he had been before. And probably the magazine began to slowly lose traction, and then the internet comes, and it's it's over, kind of, you know. Uh, my guest is Joe Hagen. The book is called Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone Magazine. So what's the future for Rolling Stone Magazine? I... I know that they are trying to sell. They're thinking about going online only. There's a video channel I heard yeah, something yeah. about. this is what they've been working on yeah. for the last few years. I mean, listen, I think because I've written this book, this is my opinion, that I don't know what Rolling Stone is without Jan Winter. Right. I mean, basically, it's always been his worldview, his yearbook, his calling card. It's his social calendar. Yeah. And in a way, without that, it's a brand. Now, you could reinvent that brand, but right now, it has a lot of associations, not all of them positive. It's, you know, the people for whom it has any association are basically 35 and older. And I think that, uh, you know, Jan has said that if we sell this to somebody, we want to be involved still. I can't imagine who would want to buy it and have them along for the ride. In the last few years, they've been looking at Vice as the model for what they'd want to be. In fact, I, you know, they wanted to be basically the Showtime to Vice's HBO, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and they tried to cut a deal with Showtime. It didn't work out. But I think that um, uh, I, the thing that Vice has is it has an, uh, an incredible, um, legitimate, authentic energy with youth culture. It's connected. Yeah. You know, Shane Smith, who founded that, he's like the Jan Wenner of 1967. He is this kind of irascible barbarian who's going to, like, make things happen. You know, he throws himself into a war zone and films it and throws it up, and people are like, whoa, this guy is, like, rocking it, you know? Yeah. So what does he do? He invests all this big – he attracts all this big investment money. Money. Rupert Murdoch, you know? Tom Freston, the former head of Viacoms. That's, what's, that's what Rolling Stone would like to have happen right now, but I'm not sure they can. 
The book is called Sticky Fingers, The Life and Times of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone Magazine. The guest was Joe Hagen. Uh, it's a long title for a book. Uh, it's an even longer book. It's about 600 pages, but it's worth every tree that had to give its life so this book could become a reality. It's really great stuff. Joe Hagen's a great writer, but it's not just about Rolling Stone magazine. It's not just about Jan Wenner. It's really a look back at four or five decades where everything changed. They were extraordinarily disruptive decades from Vietnam to rock and roll to hip hop to everything that happened in the sense of pop culture. Uh, Joe Hagen touches on it all uh, and, and does it through the lens of Rolling Stone magazine, which for much of that time, for much of the last four or five decades, was one of you know the, the vital magazines out there if you were interested in what was going on in youth culture. I love talking to Joe Hagen. I always love talking to you, but that's it. It's over. We're done now for this week. Thanks for coming by. Make sure you come by next Monday. We put a new show up every single Monday. You never know who's going to be here. So make sure you come back and check it out because who knows? It might be one of your favorite people and you don't want to miss that. <laughs>